The Linux Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan and DigitalOcean. Go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code LASTDIGITAL and then you can spin up your own Linux rig for free. Welcome to the Linux Action Show, episode 381. My name is Chris. And my name is Noah. Hey, Noah, guess what? Big show today coming up on the Linux Action Show. We're going to finally give you our story of how we got started with Linux. The, show, the big show has been almost going for 10 years now, and I've never actually given, given this story. I don't really like to talk about myself, but uh, I realized that it might connect with some of you because my, my getting started with Linux was so happenstance, it just could have never happened if anything would have changed. And Noah's story, well... Still kind of new to the show, so I'm fascinated to know how Noah got started with Linux, so I figured let's put it right here in the big show. So that's coming up on today's episode of the Linux Action Show. Plus, in the news, a new version of Elementary OS is out. Updates on the Munich Linux controversy that we've been covering for the last couple of weeks. Some great feedback, and also that Save Wi-Fi initiative that's extremely important and could impact Linux users, too. We're going to tell you about that. But before all of that, Noah, do you know what we got? We got the picks. We got the picks. And uh, I'll tell you, this one, I, I was like, hey, Noah, if you got to run Linux this week, could you drop that there in the dog as we're going on air? Because we were both like kind of undecided what to go. Because we usually have a good running list because you guys are great about sending them in. And, uh, and if I would have saw this one in the stack, this is the one I would have picked too. This killer robot runs Linux. Uh, actually, the all series of these killer robots runs Linux. And hopefully we won't get pulled off of YouTube for playing a little bit of this because we think it's uh, – Fair use. Uh, and I want to play a little bit of a clip from a Motherboard about these new robots. And if you watch carefully, you will see some Linux in there. And if you listen carefully, you're going to hear something pretty amazing. Robot power. If technology grows faster than the wisdom, it's kind of like going into kindergarten and giving them a bunch of hand grenades to play with. The robots are here. Some of them look a lot like us. Others, not so much. And they're all controlled with remote Linux systems. Now, I'm not going to play any more of the video just because, you know, we don't really need to for these purposes, but also I don't want to get pulled down. But if you uh, want to, you can find it in the show notes and go check it out. It's pretty slick. The machines are controlled with uh, Ubuntu Linux, which is not too uncommon anymore. But, no, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but they have, like, these long cables that run out of the back of the robot. And they're like, they, they almost look like power cables, but I don't think they are power cables because they're going into what looks like some HP Linux laptops. I don't know if you mm-hmm. saw in the video. And I, I don't. I, to me, it all looked like they're all Ubuntu. Right. Yeah. Yeah. From the desktop screenshot where the guy is controlling it, but I love the fact that he has he has like the two monitors, and then he's got like like seven terminals open, and yes. then like he 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 has like he even makes like the cheesy little lines like powering up the robot, and then yeah. like moves yes. over to his terminals and executes the code. That was my favorite part. Like they actually say uh, robot power or something like that. Okay, well, I got to go back and find that. This even though it's it's worth uh, it's worth getting us taken off the air. Let's see here. Some of us humans for how to manage the technology. Robot power. Uh, <laughs> That's a great. I want that clipped out. If anybody could clip that out and send it into Linux Action Show at JupiterBroadcasting.com. That, that is so great. So these killer robots totally powered by Linux. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's actually, I think we might be better off if the robots could not embrace and extend the system that controls them. We might be safer if the robots were running Windows in, like, the medicine. Yeah, well, of course they would, because then, then like, every, they would go, like, to, to capture the person, and somebody would have to press Control-Alt-Delete before it works. <laughs> very true, very true. Hey, Noah, uh, guess what? I got to tell you about something that's powered by Linux, and that's DigitalOcean, our sponsor on the Linux Action Show. Go over to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code LASTDIGITAL. 
That'll give you a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own Linux rig up in the sky. And man, is it slick. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. And when you use our promo code LASTDIGITAL, you're going to get a $10 credit. But the regular like starting rig is $5 a month. Not a day. $5 a month. They'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, and Germany. So you can have a lot of different locations. And they have multiple data centers in some of these locations. They support IPv6, private networking. The private networking is fantastic because there's no transfer between machines. So you could have a, like a front-end proxy or a front-end web server with a back-end SQL server that isn't exposed to the web. It's done over private networking. It's safer. There's no transfer fee. It's slick. DigitalOcean offers all of this at just every single price point. And it's all powered by KVM right on top of the Linux kernel using SSDs for all the disk I.O. To match it all up, they have a great interface that's simple, intuitive, but yet very powerful. You can select from all the different distros you'd want to use. One-click deployment of applications, easy to transfer to other clients, super easy to do backups and snapshots before you get going, and extensible with their straightforward API. Plus, there's a bunch of community applications already written to take advantage of that API. This is really how it's supposed to be done. Built on top of an iron cloud Linux infrastructure, you can go get a system deployed there right now with an HTML5 console. Watch it from post all the way up to the login screen using any web browser you want, no flash required. Go to DigitalOcean.com and use that promo code, LASTDIGITAL, one word, lowercase. And Noah and I are long-time DigitalOcean. I don't, I don't actually know how long. I, I think Noah actually has me beat by a month or two. Well, I actually, I started using DigitalOcean actually before they became a sponsor of the show. I actually, it's uh, as weird as it is, I had, a, there's a pop-up ad on Facebook and I, I had a client that we were trying to use an alternative provider for and they wouldn't work with us um, to get the, 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 a lot of VPSs use modified kernels and they, the, the one that we were using wouldn't work with us. And so we couldn't get a, a certain portion of the software stack to work. And DigitalOcean was the first company to step up and say, we'll, we'll work with you. And, uh, and I've been a customer ever since. Love it. That is so cool. And, you know, it's also if you want to build something for somebody and then transfer it to them once you're done with it, it's really good for that. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code LASTDIGITAL. And a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. Uh, so I came across something that uh, was submitted to the show by, uh, by a listener uh, who I suspect is also a listener of TechSnap. Uh, it's listener Samer Jabea, I think is how you say his name. And he submitted this to the Linux Action Show subreddit, and it's called Bash Scanner. A fast way to scan your server for outdated software and potential exploits. And this was something that came up uh, by Alan on TechSnap because he was explaining how FreeBSD can do this, of course. And so I was, I said there's not really a, um, a great solution. Of course, you could you know, query your package manager and all those kinds of things. But this is a full-on audit that goes through and generates reports on a cron schedule. And it's called Bash Scanner, and it ties in with an online resource, to, uh, which is a commercial resource. But it's, you know, they, have a, they have a database available to check the database. And it only works with certain distributions, so I've pulled it down. It doesn't work with Arch at the moment, and but I did grab the documentation. It's in Markdown. And so the install is super easy. You can pull down the uh, URL that we'll have in the show notes, and then you just run the patrol server. It is very early. In fact, they say this version is currently not really suitable for build. It's more for internal purposes. You can download an internal stable release that they have available and use the demo API right now. But once it's done, you, you can get, uh, after your initial scan, you'll get additional uh, extended reports on your system. It supports continuous scanning to look for new packages. It can do daily scans to determine if your system's going out of date. This, for some areas of business, they have to be checking these things as part of an audit process. So this is really key for this because this is something that FreeBSD and Windows can do, and this is something that you could do with your own custom script. But if you're running Debian or Ubuntu, 
then this thing currently detects the following software updates. For, uh, all Debian and Ubuntu packages, OpenSSL, OpenSSH, cPanel, Drupal, Nginx, Composer modules, uh, Larval, Apache, PHP, and Bind all separately, and they can generate complete extensive reports on those and tell you what their status is versus the, you know, what, what, and what, what maybe your security gap would be if you didn't have the uh, patch installed. It's called Bash Scanner, and I love it because, A, it's a Bash script, so if you're a little suspicious about something like this, well, you can look at the script, and B, it's free, and C, it's offering something that our FreeBSD-loving friends are touting these days as, well, that's really easy to do on FreeBSD. So a big thank you to Samer Jebha. <laughs> I'm sorry, dude. So the the thing the thing that stands out to me the the first thing is and and you already briefly touched on this is because it's a bash script I don't know programming languages really so I like the concept of open source I like the fact that if I wanted to pay a programmer to audit the code I could do that but the reality is ninety nine percent of the time I'm just not going to do it right yeah yeah and with a bash script though I understand bash at least you know as well as one can understand bash while having a full time job um and so i can open that that up and and kind of look and see what it's doing and the other thing is even if i had no practical way to use this i would love to get on an airplane and just have this run in the background right. on my local yeah, machine it would totally be good for b-roll <laughs> just like on a background monitor somewhere or like when a client locks in or if you need to like get some hacker code scrolling across the screen it'd be good for that that'd be great uh all right so uh, we got something different for the spotlight uh this week it's a little self-serving but uh it it actually went through a couple of different iterations uh, so first, I was going to talk about the road trip a little bit today. Uh, the uh, the I guess I should back up. Not everybody is current on everything that's going on. Um, I I'm going on a road trip in uh, mid September, and uh, I've been documenting that process. And so I've posted two videos uh, on the build up to the road trip, uh, yeah, um, getting repairs done to the truck and, and some other things. It's just basically the journey of the process, the process of the journey, something like that. And so those are now posted and linked in uh, the show notes if you're curious about the upcoming road trip and what's going on behind the scenes to make that work. And I went through a few items. And I was actually uh, going to spend a couple of moments here at the top of the show to say, hey, if you'd like to help make this possible, there is an Amazon wish list available. Uh, but it, Noah, you kicked it off last week. Right after the show, you bought my my uh, black tank dump hose. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, being the brown man, I thought it was my my responsibility to remove all brown content from your RV. Thank you. And it's a very nice hose too. You got a really nice. And you also got the uh Have you have you figured out what the RV uh what the RV nickname is for that hose? Uh the you... Stinky Slinky. <laughs> okay. It fits, right? Right? You now that you're playing with it, you're like I can see how they'd come up yes. with that name. Oh yeah, oh yeah. If and it's funny cuz it, like it compresses down to like uh like 6 feet, but it extends out to like 15 feet. So if you don't know what we're talking about, just Google RV Black Tank. Um, and then you also got me a pressure regulator so I don't blow out the lines when I'm filling up water, which is cool, and a uh, water um, baron. Is that what it's called? I call it a water jug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, But it's nice. And then um, and so then I was going to plug the wish list, but really pretty much the Hanians, I'm very humbled to say, has almost gotten everything on the entire wish list. The only things really remaining are like the ones that are pretty understandable. The really large ticket item is the WeBoost uh, 4G uh, cell booster kit, which is 380 bucks. It's something I can't afford, and it's probably something most people can't afford. So it's totally understandable that's still on the wish list. If somebody is in a comfortable position and wants to help with connectivity, that would be really appreciated. I'm going to soldier on with or without it. Um, I think it could make the difference between maybe having like one bar and like getting three or four bars, which could make the difference between a good live show or no live show. So I would really appreciate it, but it's a very high ticket item. That's why I am not getting it personally. I will. I am going to be flipping. Obviously, I'll be paying for the installation, which would probably be about another $400. Um, and then Noah, I had to, I had to brace you for something, a little road trip update uh, in okay, the spotlight. All right. I'm considering myself, I'm sitting down. 
This is a big change. This is a okay. big change. But you know, right. uh, I've been I've been evaluating cell signal options, and yes. um, I'm considering once I hit Spokane to take I ninety to your place and then jump up at that last highway there. Oh and, wow! And I know it's a huge change, but yeah, the uh, the cell signal um, coverage goes from like huge giant gaps, like especially in Montana where there's literally no signal, to um, in some sections on I ninety in that same area, it's five percent better than the national average. Like it's it's a it goes from no signal to in some instances better than the national average if I take I ninety. So I think I have a way 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 better shot of staying connected and being able to broadcast from the road if I take I ninety. And on top of that, have you heard of Harvest Hosts? I have not, dude. It's like an RV camp. Only it only can you know it, it only it's at a winery or a brewery and you're you're supposed to although you do not have to at all in any means but if you would like to you can repay for your time there by getting involved in the brewing or wine process like they'll walk they'll do tours and there is a couple in Montana along I ninety and so you go you park the rig there they've got full RV hookups including Wi Fi. And you can stay for a couple of days and you get to tour the brewery. So we're going to stop at a brewery, go through there, get some beer, pick up some local beers to share with people on the road trip when we do meetups. And, and one of our stops is going to be right there at this Harvest Host. And there's hundreds of them all over the U.S. It's like it's been taking off over the last couple of years. Check them out. Google Harvest Host. And if you have an RV and you want to go stay somewhere really special and unique, it's an, 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 there's like a $44 a year membership just to get access to the directory. And then it's, it's free. It's amazing. So we're going to be doing that on the road trip. It's it almost seems like if you because this is this is just one of of many puzzle pieces of things that you have that you've kind of put together to, uh, you know, like because you have that uh, you have that uh, that twenty five dollar a year membership, too. Right. Yeah, yep. Yep. So like you, you figure you put all these together, you're probably saving some serious buck. Yeah, man. I mean, uh, we're just starting this weekend uh, after we get off the air here. I'm going to I have it. I have the RV parked out in front of the studio taking up half the road right now. And uh, the garbage truck and the school bus just both barely fit. The, the garbage truck had to go up on the uh, sidewalk a little bit. But uh, after this, I'm going camping. I'm going to take the RV over the weekend, and um, I'm planning to stay in the RV over the whole weekend at different camping and parking spots. So uh, I'll let you know how it goes on Monday. So if I if I make it back for quarter, no, I don't have quarter on Monday. If I make it yeah. back for Linux Unplugged on Tuesday, you know I survived the weekend in the trailer. And and if we don't, if, we, if no shows are on the air next week, that means that camping did not go well. Yeah, and that we need to start searching for a replacement. You know the biggest thing that hit me today was, and I know you and I have already talked about it. I was totally braced for it, but I went. I, I since I have the trailer out in front of the studio, I did all of today's Linux Action Show prep in the trailer. Uh huh. Because the Wi-Fi just barely reaches out there. That that thing, that new one you gave us, is way stronger. Oh, good. And that's a you know, and that's at half power too. That that puppy can get cranked up a little bit if need be. I might need because it was like I was like low end of the connection. Like I had full okay. bars, but the but the transfer rate was low. But it works for just doing show prep. And um, so I sat out in the in the trailer and did that. And you know what? The first thing and I know we've already talked about this, but the first thing that struck me was when I'm running off of battery power, none of those outlets are active. Yeah. Yeah, none of the AC stuff works. Yeah. yeah. So I, it took me about 30 minutes, and then I went out and got some shore power and ran a really long extension cord from the studio out to the trailer. <laughs> that will actually, we'll have that fixed done. The, the equipment's supposed to arrive to me on the 7th, or I'm sorry, the 10th. Ooh. So I, it'll take me about a day or two to get that assembled. So I'll probably have it to you on the 12th or 13th, and you can repeat that exercise and see how it goes with having all DC power. Right. That's going to be slick. That's going to be, that's going to be, you know, because it's cool that we had, we had gone through that rig before I got the official uh, go through, by the way. I'm really glad we did that because if you weren't here and we hadn't done that, there would have been a major miscommunication. So I asked the guy just to mm-hmm. test him. I said, hey, so are there, is there a DC outlet in the, uh, in the coach? 
Nope, no DC plugs. All AC. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> I had known that you and I had found the DC plug because I because you and I looked right. for it and there it was right. And so right. Yep. Uh, I'm like, oh, okay. And then I so I moved the TV. I'm like, is that a DC plug right there? He's like, oh. Well, son of a gun, I guess it does have one. But I wouldn't have known to look behind the TV like that. And so if I had just asked him that and we hadn't gone through the tour, I would have been walking away from the sale thinking I didn't have any DC outlets in the coach. Yeah. And well, here I don't think, I don't know if I've ever seen an RV, whether it be a Class C, a Class B, or a travel trailer, or a fifth wheel, that doesn't have DC. Yeah, I mean, that's they put batteries thinking. at the front of the thing. It's there. If they're going to run them in for the lights, they're going to have some place for you to tap into it. I would, yeah, well, that's true, too, yeah. And and the box that I've uh, that I've ordered to you, I, I don't know if you can, you can uh, we'll see how good your, your production being able to Google skills will, as, I, as I explain something, see so if you can get a picture <laughs> oh, okay. of this, but Anderson, uh, Anderson Power Poles, there's something called a rig runner. Now, anyone that's in the ham radio community is going to be intimately familiar with this device. It is a genderless DC power distribution. Oh yeah, yeah. That has uh, individual line fuses. So, for example, you have a twenty amp fuse that goes to your laptop. We have a twenty amp fuse that goes to the mixer. We have a twenty amp fuse that goes to the, uh, you know, maybe a little work light or something like that. Um, and you have individual fuses for all those. And then there's one master fuse that goes into uh, into the rig runner itself. So the nice thing is you can plug your cell phone in and you can plug your mm. computer in. And, and if one thing screws up, like you, you let's say your cell phone uh, shorts out and, and, and starts breaking things, it only takes out your cell phone, but all the rest of your DC stuff will stay running, which is great if you're doing a podcast. No kidding. Yeah, that is really slick. Okay, so I, I, see, the, now I see the individual fuses on there, so that it just pops those. Uh-huh. Very cool. No, the rig runner, for those of mm-hmm, you who want mm-hmm. something like that. And I've ordered some DC extender cables and things like that, so... I think we're all set up. All right. Well, uh, last at least from the spotlight section here, um, we are still looking for a name for the roadshow. And I have a, c- a couple of threads going on in the Linux Action Show subreddit. Probably should just go with the top one I linked in the show notes if you want to name the last mobile show. And then also if you uh, want to become a patron, patreon.com slash today, I'm going to be posting more exclusive updates later on. First few updates I'm posting for everybody just so we all kind of are on the same page just to get the word out. And then I think once we hit the road, we'll probably be inundated with enough content that I'll be posting exclusives for our patrons and also some of the funds raised there will probably help our expenses on the road, which are going to be ongoing, including meetups. And if you want to do meetups with us all on the way, meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting, where we'll be making some announcements there. All of our past picks are at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash last picks. All right, Noah, let's do the news. the news and this episode is brought to you by ting.com everybody go to last.ting.com in fact go right now because we've got a 50 dollar deal a 50 50 deal you get 50 dollars off your first ting device or if you have a ting compatible device got gsm and cdma networks then you'll get 50 dollars in service credit which will definitely probably pay for more than i mean it, that would have paid for like two months of my ting service when i first switched it would now well i mean it would pay for more than a first month i had like 37 38 bucks this month for my ting bill it's no contract only pay for what you use wireless how about that no contract. That means no early termination fee. I love that. Plus, all the devices are unlocked, so you own those suckers outright like you would a real computer. And Ting has a great dashboard to manage all of it. In fact, uh, Noah has been uh, just telling us on the pre-show that uh, he just helped somebody switch to Ting what, just a couple of days ago, Noah. Yep, yep. On, on Saturday, I, I, we ordered a phone for a friend and had it in his hand and activated by... By Wednesday, I think it was, and so far he's on track to save a bunch of money, which is interesting because he was already on a uh, like a like a, a fairly a fairly competitive uh, right. like MVNO deal. But if you go to last.ting.com, they have a savings calculator. You might check it out. You might even still like he's what saving like sixteen bucks a month. Yeah, and you know I think there's a I think there's a common misconception. I think people think to themselves they go well. 
if I, you know, if I was switching from one of the big name carriers where I was paying a hundred or two hundred dollars a month, I'd probably save some money. But you know, with this uh, with this prepaid plan I have, where I have unlimited texts and unlimited data and unlimited phone, and it only costs me fifty five bucks a month, that uh, that's probably a better deal. But actually, if you look at what you actually use and not what you're actually paying for, if you don't use uh, every first of all, everything is limited, right? At the end of the month, you do have a limited amount of data. You may not know what that limit is, and they might not charge you based on exceeding a specific limit, but you used a limited amount of data. And if you look at what that limit is, for most people, it falls under two gigabytes a month, and it certainly did with with my friend. And so uh, he was able to save, yeah, I, I think a little over 15 bucks a month, and he was only paying like 50 with his uh, with his previous carrier. That's slick. And then, of course, he's got a great dashboard. It's super easy to manage that, and if he ever needs any customer service, you can call him at one eight five five ting ftw and a real human being answers the phone. Check this out. So we, like I mentioned, we got that $50 discount. Um, the Moto E second gen is a great phone. You can get it on GSM or CDMA. This is a really nice value phone, and you can get it with 50 bucks off. I think the base price is like 150 bucks. So you can basically probably pick that phone up for 100 bucks. And even if they didn't give you a, 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 a discount off the phone like this one, you might just get a service credit. That's still still saving money on the phone because – you, you get that phone for $147 unlocked, and they're going to give you a $50 service credit for this phone. That's still a great savings. Or take a look at this. Take a look at this. This one is already so freaking low. I mean, you can now get the Nexus 6 from Ting for $350. Then you can apply our – they, they won't apply the service credit. They won't apply the credit to that price because that's so crazy low. But they will give you $50 in service credit. So you can go get the Nexus 6 for $350, unlocked, no contract, pay for what you use on Ting, and then they'll give you $50 in service credit, and you're supporting the Linux Action Show. Go to last.ting.com to get started, so that way we get the credit. Also, they got MiFi devices, which <laughs> I'm going to be looking into uh, very soon. Go to last.ting.com, and a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. We really do appreciate it. Okay, and thanks to our viewers and listeners who go support Ting. Now, this next story is a huge one, Noah, and I don't know if you've uh, heard much about it. It's the uh, Save Wi-Fi initiative that's going on. It's posted up at Libre yes. Planet and a few other places. Mm-hmm. Right now, the FCC is considering a proposal to require manufacturers to lock down computing devices, routers, PC phones, pretty much anything with a Wi-Fi radio in it to prevent modification if they have a modular wireless radio or a device with an electronic label. This would likely restrict installation of alternative operating systems on your PCs like Linux, OpenBSD, or FreeBSD, prevent research into advanced wireless technologies like mesh networking and buffer bloat fixes, ban installation of custom firmware on your Android phone, discourage the development of alternative free and open-source Wi-Fi firmwares like OpenWRT, infringe upon the ability of amateur radio operators to create high-powered mesh networks to assist emergency personnel in a disaster, prevent resellers from installing firmwares on routers such as for retail Wi-Fi hotspots or VPNs without agreeing to any conditions or so that the manufacturer chooses. Now, uh, the folks at Think Penguin, the EFF, the Free Software Foundation, the Software Freedom Law Center, the Software Freedom Conservancy, OpenWRT, LibreCMC, Qualcomm, and others have put together the Save Wi-Fi campaign. It seems like a pretty big deal, and a lot of really important people are jumping in on this. We have links also in the show notes to the Fed, to the FCC's uh, online comment system. They're taking comments until October 8th. I th- no, no, until September 8th, I believe. If that's true, then there's only a few days left to do this as we record this, Tuesday as we record this. Um, 
this is a pretty urgent thing, it would seem. And uh, I've also linked in the show notes to a Hackaday article about it that goes into uh, some detail. No, have you have you caught any wind of this? Yeah, I have. I you know it's it's been a pretty busy week, so I haven't had time to to dive in into the specific details. But I have been briefly looking at it, and I've you know you can really tell when something is going to strike a nerve of mine when I see a bunch of other people that I really respect. Uh, becoming very concerned about this, and mm-hmm. every one of them this week has has made mm-hmm. a comment about this. Yeah. Um, anytime the federal, anytime any organization, but especially when something as large and as powerful as the federal government steps in and 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 puts in place measures that is going to restrict the installation of Linux, I have a problem with that. I was wondering too. Would you have a do? You, do you have any thoughts of this as a ham? Because it sounds like oh, this, yeah. this would impact ham radio too. Oh, absolutely. So, so uh, you know, the entire premise behind uh, amateur radio is that the government says we understand that you guys are are out to have fun. You guys are you you guys want to play with technology and learn about technology. And so, let's carve out a little bit of space of what would be millions of dollars of frequency spectrum, and we'll give you that little bit of space to play with. And you can right. do whatever you want with right. it. We'll actually keep everyone else out of your hair. And so, yeah, I, I absolutely have a problem when when the federal government wants to come back in and say, no, in fact, we're actually going to go the opposite direction. We're going to make it less likely for people to play or or as they say, modify, uh, 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 you know, um, wireless radios. Yeah. And is, is the um, is the two point four gigahertz and five gigahertz spe- spectrum so precious that it that it's well, it's worth this. I thought that the whole idea of some of these you know, a modular wireless radio spectrums that they operate in was that it was essentially unlicensed and it was meant to be messy. And that's why our cordless yeah. phones and our microphones right. and our and our laptops and, and smartphones are using that for Wi-Fi. And so right. why all of a sudden is it become so important to protect that, that uh, we have to lock anything down with an electronic label or a modulus wireless radio, a modular wireless radio? It's just ridiculous. Yeah, and I'm not sure if you look from from a pure uh, from a pure uh, electronics theoretical standpoint, the lower the frequency, the greater the hop. So in other words, the greater distance I can cover. So if I take, for example, uh, 50 megahertz, I can propagate a 50 megahertz signal a heck of a lot further, like is in Japan further than I can propagate a 2.4 gigahertz. So we're going from we're going from 50 megahertz to essentially uh, 200 and what would be 250, 2,500 megahertz. Is that 250 megahertz? Is that right? Uh, am I doing that calculation? Right? So. Yep. Uh, you, know, gr- you know, infinitely greater, infinitely larger, uh, uh, infinitely larger frequency means that the hop is going to be much, much shorter. And so 2.4 gigahertz, you'd be lucky to, you know, for a single hop to make it outside of a steel building, for example, which is why it's so particularly useful for things like Wi-Fi, because if I can have a Wi-Fi network in my house and you can have one in your house and your neighbor can have one in mm-hmm. their house, and as long as Comcast doesn't get involved, <laughs> we don't see each other's networks. Right. And it's it's just right. Although here it's a bit of a mess, but in theory, right. it could work. But I, right. I, don't, I think that I think that has a lot to do with Comcast, though. And yeah. they're they're exploding everywhere. They're, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Thanks, right. buddy. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Comcast. Hey, uh, you guys, this seems like a pretty big deal, and I'm going to be looking into this after the show more. And I have a link in the show notes if you want to go in there and, and fill the FCC's comment box with how dumb this is. Um, and we have more reading in the show notes for links too. All right. So let's talk about something super fun, something neat. Our friends over at Elementary OS have a new release. Freya 0.3.1 is here. The new version closes about 200 reports and brings new features, tons of fixes, better hardware support, some visual polish, and enhanced translation. So far, Elementary OS has been downloaded an estimated 5 million times. Now, here's an interesting stat that they're releasing for the first time, Noah. They claim that they are seeing almost 70% of their downloads coming from Windows and OS X switchers. They say they 
Say welcome and congratulations to the over 3 million new users of an open source operating system. You buy that? I'll put it this way. <laughs> I am more than willing to accept their statistic until I have reasonable evidence to, to suggest otherwise. You know, and 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 uh, and I think we can celebrate that. I think we can celebrate the idea that a lot of people, a lot more people are coming from Windows and Mac than than an existing Linux distribution. Now, if you think about mm-hmm. that, that actually makes sense, because how many Linux users do you know that were happy with the distribution uh, so they so they weren't using Windows or Mac. They were they were actually on a Linux distro because you have to be happy with it to switch to it to begin with. How many of those users have you seen switching to elementary? I haven't seen a ton. Yeah, they're usually happy with GNOME or KDE or awesome right. or whatever they're using. Right. And and then then they've also, you know, I mean, the reality is anytime you go out to these uh, to the fringe distros and I would consider elementary a fringe distro. Once you once you go out there, you have to have you you lose some of some of the mainstream support that you would get. You know, when Lightworks comes out, they don't come out for elementary. Sure, most of the time it will work it just works, fine because yeah. it's Ubuntu-based, right? But it, they don't actually release for elementary. They release for Ubuntu. And right. the same is true for things like Steam. And so once I have already made the change to something like Ubuntu, once I'm on a mainstream distro, in your case, Arch, once you've gotten to uh, to one of those one of those more mainstream distros and you become uh, connected and involved and comfortable with all the tools that are there – why would you leave that stable base and that support base to go for, you know, for a fringe distro yeah. unless yeah. they offered something, you know, way above and beyond, you know, what you could get anywhere else? And I think that elementary OS is a very elegantly designed, very UI, uh, beautiful mm-hmm. OS. And it's clear from talking with the developers, they put a lot of thought into how they could design. Yeah. I mean, I remember specifically you walked away from a couple of interviews and you said, uh, wow. I mean, after talking to them, I really understand. Like, they really sweat the details. Like, yep. much more than we even know. Like, like the, right. you know, the curvature of the of the rounded corner of this particular screen yep. and things like that. And, you know, they say to that to that extent, actually, they say at the heart of this upgrade is the latest hardware enablement stack from Ubuntu. So we get Ubuntu 14.04.3 under the hood, essentially, which gives us kernel 3.19 uh, updated Mesa drivers. Uh, they fixed the do- the dreaded double cursor glitch, as they put it. And workspaces in the multitasking view also now work properly on Optimus NVIDIA cards. They say the new hardware stack also brings better support for backlights and touchpads on certain laptops. And they say a whole host of performance and power-related improvements, as well as support for 5th-gen Intel processors. And they say this release should also improve support for UEFI systems, especially when installing without an internet connection. But they really they really double down and say... We're bringing the long-awaited redesign to our file chooser dialog here, available in all GTK3 apps. We're also debuting a new recent documents feature, which makes finding your recent files faster and adds the ability to conveniently remove files from your browsing history. Hey-o. Uh, and they've also included the new Midori, which support for the new header bar and uh, the uh, their their version of a spin on the Adblock extension. And uh, they've added new uh, C code for refactoring their shiny new Vala code to look forward to, they say, more robust native web browsers in the future, better unit tests, etc., so a lot of refinement there. And this GTK3 dialog uh, that they're talking about is replaces the GNOME 3 dialog open file dialog box, which I hate. It's the, I think it's the GNOME 3 file dialog open box is one of the worst computer bits of interface on any operating system anywhere. I'll, I, here's why, Noah. Here's, it's so, it's so asinine. It's so, I wonder if I could just, here, I'll just, I'll just, I'll open up Gedit here and I'm going to do file open, Noah. And oh yeah, they have, this is the new, yeah, so I have to bring it up because this is the new dropdown. They, the default the default when you start typing in the box is not to like sort by whatever. Like, so if I wanted, you know, something, if I wanted a file that starts with D, I would normally hit the D button on my keyboard and it would drop uh-huh. down the list alphabetically to D, right? Instead, it starts this weird secondary pop up box 
that does a search, but it's not searching the open dialogue files and it's not displaying anything in there. It just is stealing my input and putting it into a tiny box that does nothing. Yeah. 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 I've, I've dealt with that. I, you know, and that, that's a lot of the stuff that I guess for better or for worse, uh, that's the kind of stuff that I, from using Linux so long that I actually just kind of look past. I know. I, don't I know. Even, it I know. doesn't even register. But me. that's the kind of stuff they're fixing though. That's the kind of stuff they're fixing. Also better high DPI play support. Uh, and they've redesigned the videos icon, made adjustments to a bunch of other icons. So, you know, like we always say, they uh, they're making a UI improvements. And by the way, they say many of the new fixes and features available in this upgrade were funded by supporters on Bounty Source and Patreon. I think I think Patreon's a great idea for some distros. And so I like that yeah. they're on there too. You guys, if you want to support the Elementary OS project on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash elementary. And Noah and I are the first to admit that elementary OS is not for everybody, it's not even for us. But we see the yeah. we see the spot for it. Yeah, although the one time that we did uh, go to use elementary OS, what stopped us was the lack of UEFI support, and I'm happy to see that that's right. been fixed now. Good catch. Yeah. I forgot about that. And you know, mm-hmm. uh, D- Dylan on that Dell Sputnik laptop has been running elementary OS since day one, and it's working oh, great for yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's he's happy with it. We had like one time there was no. Actually, I don't. That wasn't even that. No. It, yeah, it's been literally flawless, and I've I've only done updates like two or three times, but every time they've gone installed just fine. And, you know, it, it boots right up for him, and it, it's, it's very functional. You know, Minecraft's right there in the launcher. The wireless works. You know, one of the things it does really well is it wakes up and connects to Wi-Fi pretty damn fast. And uh, that's sort of the number one thing when you have a six-year-old using a laptop. They don't, they don't appreciate the fact that it's sending out a DHCP packet and asking for an IP address from my firewall on a broadcast interface and then coming back and getting that IP address lease for X amount of days and, and then connecting to the network and then getting the names in their server information and, and pinging out. It doesn't care about any of it. He doesn't care. He just wants to open up the laptop, open, launch Minecraft, and log in immediately. And he's very fast at it. So the fact that the elementary OS Wi-Fi connects immediately for him is nice because I've had some desktop environments where that is not the case. The nice thing about children, too, and I'm finding this out with my son, is that they are able to evaluate things on a totally different level than you and I can, mm-hmm. because we come into it with preconceived notions, and they don't. Um, so if you, you know, he not to say that he'll never run into some issues, but he just sees those as the things that you have to do when you're using the laptop, as we would when Windows freezes up or when a little box pops up that you can't quite get to and doesn't have focus, stuff like that. We we kind of write that off, and, and kids tend to write off some of the stuff that we would see as fundamental quote-unquote flaws with linux mm-hmm, 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 mm. that's very nice to see it's nice to get that new fresh perspective from uh from the youngins out there especially when they're re- when they're you know when they're really young they really have no bias at all it's it's fun yeah uh, and challenging all right so let's follow up one last news story before we get out of here the munich linux drama going on for now three episodes of the linux action show and um i think last week we kind of decided it's like uh there's there's uh, um, the outcry. It doesn't necessarily actually match what's happening at Munich. But I think and I, I still maintain after all these updates, there are some core implementation issues, especially ones in regards to user experience and hardware support. But in an email to the Inquirer, one of the authors of uh, of the uh, bring back Windows letter to Munich city, city officials, uh, she says she no longer wants the city to migrate back to Microsoft. Uh, she says that our letter was not aimed to criticize the use of Linux in Munich. There are several points of criticism concerning the notebooks of the counselors with very different reasons, not Linux in general. There are 80 counselors in the city, and their work needs cannot be compared with the whole administration. So she's, I, she more so wants these 80 counselors to get Windows Box, 
She denied that there were any kind of consensus towards a complete reverse migration, but rather suggests a retroactive fitting of Windows for certain specific purposes, adding that there was nothing to suggest that the Linux system was working anything other than well. We didn't propose that Munich should switch back, she says, to Windows, and there are no indications the city is likely to do so. I would like to say that the IT of Munich is working very well in general. Now, I think part of what's getting this story some traction is there, there could be some Microsoft PR people, and, and they're releasing these stories to German publications, and then English publications are really screwing up the translation. And so mm-hmm. there's some assumptions being made. In fact, the Inquirer apologizes for some of their bad translations at the bottom of this article. Uh, they say this story has a touch of the Chinese whispers about it, coupled with a subjective translation from German to English. It really appears to be more about LibreOffice, document exchanging, like people saving things in, in proprietary uh, Office DocX formats, and uh, some end users that are just generally not happy with the overall user experience, specifically specifically these 80 counselors. So you take a, a, a real-world situation where there's end users who are not super happy with the experience, and you take a situation where the IT department is doing things like applying 400 of their own patches to LibreOffice. Yes, they're sending them upstream, but they're applying and tons of patches to Ubuntu itself, right? They're essentially forking all of the major open source projects they're deploying. And so that makes migrations extremely slow. And so they're way behind on old versions of Linux. And you combine that with a Microsoft PR person and a Microsoft sales rep who want to go in there and make a good sale. And so they're willing to spin this story out to the press. And the reason why I say that is we've actually been watching different versions of this story. Um, I mean, I mean, it's almost a year or two after they announced the switch. Basically, when this show started, I think the Munich switch was already in progress, but the controversy being generated by Microsoft was well underway. Um, advisors, uh, this time last year, advisors were said to have started to look for practical and affordable ways to reintroduce access to Windows after city, after claims workers were suffering. Uh, but it really looks like it was more about Microsoft Office in the Inquirer document. I don't know, Noah. I'm still looking at this Munich implementation, and I'm thinking if they have end-user experience issues, this problem is going to keep coming up and up and up. Yep. Yeah, because you know what? Here's the thing. The people that are in charge of making the decision are very far removed from the people that are affected by the decision. And so those the the people that are actually affected, they are constantly complaining because things, quote unquote, aren't working the way they expect them to. And then if especially if they have friends that work in other industries and 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 they see, you know, a, a familiar office interface and, and, a, and a familiar operating system and they don't understand why the, why we can't just have the quote unquote normal stuff. Um, and as those people continue to complain and continue to voice their concerns, eventually whoever it is that's a little higher up gets sick of hearing it. Um, and yeah, I, I do think that I do think that has the put, the potential to really put a, to a rain on their parade. But the answer to that, as you and I have discussed at length last week, is there are ways to fix those those issues. There are plenty of ways to fix them, and most of them involve just doing less. Just doing less, and you would fix a lot of that stuff. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, do less. Don't don't over engineer it. Don't be so clever. Don't uh, and you know. I think something I still I still stand by is, and this is just you know they did this initial initial migration in two thousand three in two thousand and fifteen. The world is so much different than it was in two thousand three. I it blows my mind. I, I mean, we didn't have we didn't have the smartphone situation we have now. Android wasn't even a contender. Uh, Windows was so clearly the champion still, the dominant platform. IE was the predominant web platform, right? This is the time they made the switch, back when people were still complaining about requiring IE for everything. And so in 2015, you make the same switch, you make so many decisions differently. Some of the, probably the same decisions they'd end up making. Some of these patches to LibreOffice, they probably still have to make to have some of their stuff work. But I think if they did it today, it would be a very different implementation. 
The thing I don't like about it is because it was one of the first really big ones, and the, the Inquirer also kind of it says this in, in a sort of a not-so-direct way, is because it had such a big, like, initial, boom, we're switching to Linux, the media just keeps kind of checking in on this and just keep seeing... Uh, so here's, the, uh, here's what the register said. As for Munich, the story of the city's attempts to go open source seems to come up for review by the media once per year. And from the response we've had, it looks like it was another storm in a teacup. And it really is true. We see this story repeating itself. And I think the reason is, is because there is some momentum behind it, but the media also just looks at it as sort of the, here's the first big switch. And so they're just looking for problems and they're making clicks and, and, and you know, headlines out of really some internal disputes. 80 counselors out of the entire city. Really? Okay. Not so bad. Yeah. Not so bad. All right, Noah, that's all the news for this week. Going on 10 years now with The Big Show, and I can't believe I've never conveyed this story in one concise just go at it. I've always sprinkled it out there, and I've never even heard Noah's full story, so I'm very excited to share with you how we got started with Linux. First, let me tell you about our segment sponsor. That's System76, creators, designers of machines born to run Ubuntu. Desktops built right here in the US of A, laptops that are custom-picked to make sure they work perfectly with Linux and I have to say, I've got two bonobos right here on the table as I record this episode of Linux Action Show. These are production workhorses. Runs, one is running Arch Linux, and the other is running Ubuntu Mate, and they both are champions. And their desktops are fantastic. Their support right here in the US of A. And, of course, when you buy from them, you're contributing to a company that's involved in the Linux ecosystem. Go over to System76.com. Check out the desktops and the laptops. So many great rigs to pick from. System76.com and Lifetime Support. How about that? Now, not uh, on the uh, on uh, on uh, all the things you would normally expect, but on the installation, that's incredible. That's incredible. I mean, even that is just it's absolutely fantastic. I love their commitment to Ubuntu, and I think they just recently uh, updated their list of shipping companies too. So uh, that's worth checking out too, because they if you've maybe written them off in the past because you didn't think they were going to ship to you, they now ship to fifty five countries. So there's a lot more. Look at that list. That's great. System seventy six dot com. Tell them the Linux Action Show sent you. Get yourself something nice. Stop fighting with the hardware. Get to play with your Linux. System76.com. Okay, Noah. So we were talking on the pre-show, and I'm going to start with my story to kind of jog your memory. But it sounds like you got all the hi- the highlights, the big pieces of it. But mine, mine, I don't, you know, when I, when I, I should back up. Uh, to tell you how I got started in Linux, you have to understand how I almost became a full-time Windows administrator. That That sounds like a good place to start. Yeah. So when I was in high school, in my senior year, I think it was, uh, there was a new operating system for Microsoft in development. And my high school, because we'd had some alumni from my high school that were very high up in the Microsoft food chain, we were chosen as a special pilot school to pilot um, the very early Microsoft certified engineers and administrator courses and to beta test in a wide scale production this new technology that Microsoft was working on called Active Directory. And it was running on a new operating system called Windows NT5. And so we had Windows NT5 workstations. We had Windows NT5 Active Directory servers. And we had Windows NT5 everything. We were converting from Novell Netware 3 to Windows NT5, which later became Windows 2000. But at the time, it was so early in the beta process that it was called Windows NT5. And we were becoming certified experts as high school students on Windows NT5. 
And I was very much down the course. My my certification course was paid for. My books were paid for by Microsoft. And the voucher to take the exam was paid for by Microsoft. So I was pretty much in the bag, good to go, heading that direction. And we were deploying servers one evening to solve a particular problem. And it was a real new challenge to us. Because we had a very large school district that was geographically quite diverse, but in many places we had line of sight between the buildings. So we got these new super, super, super expensive, I think they were Proxmox adapters connected to these big directional antennas that took um, professionals that charged us thousands of dollars to come out and line up these Wi-Fi antennas. And at our best, on 802.11, we could get two megabits. Two freaking megabits. This is how early the Wi-Fi implementation was. It wasn't even 11 megabits. It, on this link, we could get two megabits between the buildings. And in the rollout of this, the network administrators decided to flatten the entire district network. One subnet for the entire district. And that meant the broadcast domain and everything that needed to be routed had to go over these wireless links. You're in a lab at one school and, sending to the, and want to send a print job to the printer right next to you? Well, that printer, guess what? It's not on the LAN subnet, so it has to be routed. And so it goes all the way down through the wireless links from the high school down to the district office where it gets routed, and then the district office sends that packet back over the wireless link back to the high school to the printer. And, of course, you can imagine these are Windows workstations, so these are PCL print jobs and PostScript print jobs, so they're huge. They're huge. Man, I'm 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 thinking right now. Like you're talking about, like the print shops. What about every time a computer boots up and it does a broadcast yep. for, for ask for an IP address? Right. So very very quickly, two days into it, we realized our network was devastated, and the whole school district came to a crawl. And so then the they go to the students. They bring the students in because now we're working overtime. We're working after hours, and we've got a lab full of students who are up to date on the latest Microsoft courseware. And so. Uh, very fortunately, I was one of the students of a group of like two or three, really two, that got picked to go work with the teacher. Uh, his name was Jim Bassett, and I was very lucky that uh, he picked me and that he was willing to hear our input. And so we sat down, and we got uh, we got a we got a computer that was a fairly beefy workstation. And I went and scrapped a couple of network cards and an extra hard drive, and I built a, a proxy server. And so we call up Microsoft and uh, we called our, our buddy at Microsoft. We had a direct line and we say, so, oh gosh, what was his name? Can't remember his name. Oh, it's just on the tip of my mind too because he, he later became infamous in our school district. His name became infamous, but I'll tell you why in a moment. Uh, so we call up Microsoft and we say, hey guys, we've got this major situation and we're thinking we're going to drop Windows NT5 servers in between every wireless access point and that'll be the router and a proxy server and we'll start caching Everything that goes over this link. Great idea, Microsoft says. We want you to use the new beta version of our proxy software, not the one that works on NT4. You have to use the one that's built for NT5. It's in beta. And we're going, hmm, beta software? Well, we're already all in on this Microsoft thing. Let's do it. And so we, uh, they, they say, okay, we'll get you some information and we'll send you a CD. And we're like, send us a CD? We're doing this tonight. So long story short, they worked out an FTP download for us, which was very rare back then. And we got the, the information downloaded. We go to set up the Windows server on this new rig that I'd Frankenstein together with the extra network card and the extra hard drive. We get all the way into the Microsoft Windows NT5 GUI part of the installation. 
and it asked for a CD key. Well, this is about six o'clock at night. So we call back up our Microsoft rep. Uh, Look, uh, we don't have a CD key. Can you give us a CD key? That's what we were thinking we'd say. Nope, we got the voicemail. So we say, hey, Carl, we're leaving. uh, We're uh, at six o'clock here. We're up here at Arlington right now, and uh, we just need a CD key if you could call us back. Of course, didn't have text messaging or anything like that or Telegram or anything like or anything like that. So we were out of luck. Here we were, all queued up to ready to go, had the Frankenstein computer built. We had told the district administrators we were going to have this problem solved tonight. And I had felt like, oh, man, I got pulled into a project. We've totally hit a dead wall. We don't have this stupid CD key. And so we sat there and the and the the other guy, the other guy who really contributed, the other student, he goes, I've got this Debian CD. And we're like, Deb- it might have even been a disc, actually. I don't remember. It might have been a disc, actually. And a floppy disk. And so we're like, Debian. And thankfully, my teacher, Mr. Bassett, he had heard of Linux because he had been a Unix guy before he became a network guy. And so he was like, well, it can't be that much different than Unix. And we're like, okay, let's give this Debian thing a try. And so uh, we went through the process of, which was very different now than it used to be back then, of installing Debian bit by bit onto this machine. And then we had to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? How do we make this thing even work? And thankfully, my teacher, Mr. Bassett, was familiar with things like LS and PS and TOP, and we very quickly figured out how AppGit worked, and we're very impressed with that. And we didn't have Google back then, you guys. It's not like we could go Google this, okay? So we were going through books of, like, how to set up Linux computers, and we came across a book talking about Squid. Now, I got to tell you, it didn't jump out at me as the thing that was going to solve our problem with a name like Squid. Uh, and so I, but I did see Cache in the title. Oh, now Cache is something we wanted from Microsoft Proxy Server. Pulled out the book. It was an old book, but it basically gave us everything we needed to set up a Squid Proxy Server. So we were able to set up a router and a Squid Proxy Server, transparently filter all of the end users' traffic through the proxy server so we didn't have to reconfigure any of the machines. And the next morning, when the end users came in, the network was back to like it was before we'd ever put the wireless links in. Everything was running over the 100 megabit LAN. Yes, 100 megabit. And sometimes, in some cases, 10 megabit. And it was, yes, half duplex, but it was working. It, the, the print job stayed on the local LAN. We catch so much web traffic that it made the internet faster for everybody across all of the schools. And we deployed these Debian boxes everywhere. And I went back to that school 11 years later. And a couple of those original Debian rigs running on these old Dell uh, beige towers were still in production. No. Still, yes, yes, still Holy routing the traffic. Cow. Yeah, and then from there I discovered Red Hat and other distributions, and I very quickly, within a matter of days, within a matter of days, I wanted to try out Red Hat. And I swear to God, Noah, I don't even remember how I did this. I don't think anybody tricked me. I am not joking. One of the first things I ever did when I sat down at a Red Hat machine is I had a root console up and I typed rm-rf slash. I don't know why I knew the command. I don't think anybody told me. I don't remember how I came across it, but somehow I ended up deleting my entire root directory. It was one of the first things I ever did on a Red Hat Linux machine that I was setting up for myself. And and I remember I was so damn impressed. I, I I remember thinking, oh, my God. This thing just let me delete my own operating system. That's amazing. And then my second thought was, <laughs> I can't believe how much of the UI is cached in RAM and still working. <laughs> like, like <laughs> that was all the, And so that, from that moment on, I was like, I am playing with this operating system. Not only did it save us, but it was like, from like a geek standpoint, like I could not have had a better reaction to deleting my entire file system. It, it, it sold me right there. And then as I went on in my career, 
I really I hadn't completely made the mental switch. I didn't completely say, well, it's Linux for everything. I just thought, well, if you have a, a nitty gritty networking thing, obviously Linux is better than, than Windows. And remember, I'm comparing this to in production was NT4 and later Windows 2000. Linux was such a better obvious choice for anything networking based. That wasn't a big logical leap for me to make. Years later, though, I discovered that there were limitations in how many simultaneous connections and transfers that a Windows file server, a Windows 2000 file server could sustain. And so when you'd have a, when you'd have a terminal server farm of you know, 40 to 100 terminal servers and all those users are using roaming profiles, when they would log in, it would lock up the whole file server. And so I had then started migrating those types of things over to like Samba servers where there would be no limitation. And I could exclude like VBS files and .exe files from the profile directories. And it just, it became such a powerful tool that it was so obvious that Linux was the superior operating system just on the technical merits that then after becoming so impressed with it technically, I then discovered the community, the open source license, and then realized like, how important to me, as an, which later became an IT contractor and now a business owner, how important it is to me that I am working with open source foundation technologies. Like the base operating system is open. The kernel is open. On a server, this is, is part of your infrastructure, in my opinion. This is so important because it prevents vendor lock-in. It uh, gives you clear visibility to the project. So you take Apple, for example. If you have an Apple server, you have no idea what's coming in the next version of OS X server. You have no idea what changes they're going to make. You have no idea what they're going to do to open directory. Are they going to continue to deprecate it? Are they going to continue to make open directory less and less useful like they have with every single server release? You don't know. But when it's an open source server, like an open LDAP project or something like that, you can watch the mailing list. You can watch the commits. You can fork it. And that level of... When I realized... That that level of control and ownership came with the obvious technical advantages of Linux. That was really when I became super passionate and I said, I got to do a show about this. I got to talk about this stuff that I'm building at work. This is incredible. And then that's when the fire in my belly said, okay, it's time to talk about this when it all really came together. But initially, initially for me, Noah, it all started because I couldn't get the damn CD key for Windows NT5 Beta 2. That's how it all started. Now tell me about yours, sir. As far back as I can remember being even like six, seven years old, I, I would remember my dad always telling me he would say, yeah, you know, Windows is really great and, and Windows works really well. And that's that's what I you know prefer to use a really good operating system. But, uh, you know, the, the big professionals, the guys who really know computers, they always use Linux. And I think it kind of set set in at a very early age in concrete, this idea that the the best operating system out there was Linux. And I didn't, I had nothing to back that up for, for years. I had nothing to, to substantiate that. I, I just kind of grew up believing that. And I got my first job working at a help desk, uh, supporting windows software. And I asked, uh, we, we, there was a conversation in the break room one day and, and some guys were talking about Linux. And I said, you know, I'd really like to, to give Linux a shot. And the, the, there's this one really creepy guy and he actually, he later got in trouble because he got caught with a whole like CD binder full of child porn. He was the guy that looked, looked over at me and he's like, hey, uh, I'll give you a copy of Linux. So the pedophile gives me this copy of Mandrake Linux. Wow. And yeah, I know. So I take it home and I stick it in my computer and, and I boot up to it. And here's how, here's how sick I was of Windows. Here's how you know how sick I was of Windows. Because as soon as it booted up, <clears throat> the screen was completely gray and they just had an X. That was the cursor was an X. And I, I just it, it, it clear as day. I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's amazing. They have an X as a cursor. That makes so much sense. Like, and there was nothing about it that made any sense. There was nothing about it that you made it any better. So thirsty for change. 
so thirsty to see something other than a Windows cursor that I thought that an X in the middle of my screen was amazing. Now, it's a good thing that that was a good experience because everything after that sucked. <laughs> uh, I got into the operating system. My network card didn't work and I had no sound and I couldn't uh, videos didn't work. And I could only use the software that was installed because I could, didn't have access to the Internet to install anything else. And to this day. I still have I wake up in cold sweats uh, dreaming of what it was like to try to configure dial up connections in Linux. It's just a just a pain. Oh, that was rough. That was rough. So uh, so I I was so happy to be rid of Windows. I actually used my computer like that for a month before I got sick of it, but of not having Internet, not having access to be able to install anything. And then when I went to reinstall Windows, the Windows 98 second edition CD would not recognize the EXT, whatever it was back then, two or three. Uh, partition uh, that was there. And so I couldn't get windows back on. So for about the next nine months, I just didn't have a usable computer. And then I was mad at Linux. So I just didn't want to use it. And finally, when uh, windows 2000 came out, I upgraded to, to windows 2000 and I swore I would never touch Linux again. Cause that was the, that was the thing that broke my computer and I hated it. And it was, it was just, mm-hmm. a, it was just a joke. Nothing worked right. And why would anyone use that? And then I got 2000 and, and actually my windows 2000 experience was actually pretty good. I don't remember. I remember hating 98 second edition after a while. It would just slow down and lock up 2000 for me worked really, really well. And then we hit XP. And when we switched to XP and everything just kind of changed again, I, I started to get upset and I'm like, now nothing makes sense again. And I can't find anything. And half my software didn't work anyway. And I was, I was in school and a, and a buddy of mine said, um, I have a copy of Linux. Maybe you should give that a shot. And I said, no, I I did that once. It was a horrible experience. And he goes, well, maybe, maybe give it another shot and see what you think. I've used it. It works really well. So he gave me a copy of Red Hat and I installed Red Hat and I loved it. I I mean, everything worked out of the box. My network card worked. My sound worked. I had access to the, the repositories, like everything just worked. And I continued to use Red Hat all the way up through until uh, they they split and it became Red Hat and Fedora Core 1. And then I started sticking yeah. with Fedora, uh, Fedora Core and yeah, started installing right. that. Well, meanwhile, at work, we had uh, we had a Windows 2000 server. And, and I don't know if you remember this, but Windows 2000 server had this funny little issue where it would assign uh, multiple IP addresses or, or the same IP address to multiple machines. And yeah. when your job is a DHCP server, that tends to be problematic. Mm-hmm. And so and to, to, to combat this, we would just restart it every month. We would just there. There'd be a time and we just restart it. And yep. that was just what we did. That's exactly what we did, too. <laughs> yeah. And so I never I never really thought about it. I just thought that's what system administrators did was you have to restart the box to make sure everything continues to work well. And so we ordered this new uh, this new server because we were going to replace it. And it was time to upgrade. And the company that I worked for at the time had this policy that I have since implemented my company because I was so grateful for it. And the policy was. You could what they call professional development. You could PD equipment, any equipment you wanted for as long as you wanted, as long as you could have it back at the shop within 48 hours if they requested it. So I so we ordered this brand new, like five thousand dollar server. And of course, greedy little me said, I'm going to take that home, play with it. So I check it out and I take it home and I install Red Hat on it and it, it's working and I'm having fun. And then I start thinking, uh, I wonder if I could get our software to run on there. So we were using I at the time I was uh, I was a, a Lotus Notes Domino administrator. If anyone's ever heard of that uh, back then, it was a thing. And, and in fact, they still make Lotus Notes. It's 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 too bad they don't actually open source that because I think it's a really great software stack. Mm. Um, but uh, so I, I took Domino and got Domino running on Red Hat. And after about a month of it running, I noticed that I never had restarted it and it just continued to work. And it not only did it not assign the same IP address to multiple machines, the, the, the Domino so- software inside of it actually didn't crash either. 
So I, I bring it back to the shop and I tell my boss, I'm like, hey, you know, this is kind of interesting. I, I installed this software and um, had it going for like a month and a half now and, and nothing's nothing's crashed. And he goes, yeah, that is that is pretty amazing He's bring it back here. Let's check it out. So I bring it back and he puts his desktop on onto that, you know, uh, I guess, instance of the server. And he was using it for a little bit. And about three months in, he goes, yeah, I want to go with this. I, th- I think we need to do this. We need to switch. And I'm like, yeah, uh, listen, here's the thing. I don't know anything about this. Like I stuck the CD in, I clicked next a bunch of times and then I installed the software and I don't even remember how I did that. I don't know that I really think that we're in a position to, to, to install this. Cause here I am thinking he's going to expect me to support this stuff. And he goes, no, this is, this is what we got to do. I think it'll work. So I'll be darned if with no real Linux experience, we didn't put a Linux server into production <laughs> uh, for, for our company. And with me as the primary person to support it, for the first like year and a half, I guess we went almost three years with it um, and we never had a problem with it. And then uh, about three or four years in, they finally said, yeah, this is working well. We wanted to play it wide scale and they were going to switch every uh, server out. And then they sent me into Red Hat um, to get trained on 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 Red Hat. And I started using uh, and, and then, you know, kind of from there on is, is uh, you know, is history, so to speak. When you went into training, did you were you surprised or were there no surprises? Were there gaps like to make things simpler that if you would have known from the beginning? Oh, that- yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a couple things I got from training. One was the biggest thing I took away from training is confidence. And it was it was the idea that I knew how to get things done. I just never I always I always second guess myself. I always told myself, well, that's not like so, for example, one of the things I would do is I would to, if if I wanted to give somebody else pseudo access to the to the terminal without letting them have access to it, I would type something like pseudo time and their pseudo date and then enter my password. And then from then on, if they would type pseudo, it wouldn't prompt them for the password again. Mm-hmm. And there were like there were little things that I did that I, I found that, that I always second guess myself. I thought if any real Linux person ever saw me doing that, they, they would realize what a joke I am and how I have no idea what I'm doing. And I think the biggest thing I left with from Red Hat with w- the training department was that a lot of the things I was doing. I mean, sure, well, I was making some mistakes and you correct those. But the biggest thing I left with is the confidence that, yeah, actually, I did know what I was doing. And and really, if you can figure it out in a lot of ways, there is no wrong way to do things in Linux. A lot of ways, it's just the way that you're comfortable doing it. And the Red Hat test is very much designed after that uh, after that mentality in that they don't care how you get something done. They don't care if it's hodgepodge. They, they just expect you to get 18 things done and they tell you what those 18 things are and how you get to those 18 things. They don't care. Um and so, and so, yeah. The, is it is it still the case though that you don't have internet connectivity during the test? So you like you yes. gotta get those things done, but you have to be able to solve everything on that server without an internet right, connection, right? And so, and the 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 argument they gave, and I've yet to run into this in actual in an actual production environment. The argument that they give is you may be administrating a server in at a point where you don't have internet, and I understand that and I accept that as reality, but. Even the most restrictive places I've been, I have a couple of contracts with the, the U.S. Air Force Base that we've gone out there and worked. Even in the most restrictive environments, they at least have a little room with uh, with Internet on, on either a specific on a dedicated machine or most of the time they have a little room with a special connection for your laptop and you can put Internet on there. And no, you can't bring thumb drives or your laptop in the room where you're working on, on the server, but you can step out of that room, go back and, and research and, and do that stuff. I have never in my career had a time where I had a problem where I had a problem that wasn't related to the internet and where I needed the internet to fix it. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, sometimes the internet goes out and then I need the internet to fix the internet that has happened. And for that, I have things like hotspots and stuff, 
but I have never had like where the server doesn't work and and there's a problem with the server and I have no way to get to the Internet. I just I don't know that that is I don't know that that's realistic. But then again, I live in a town with 50,000 people and Red Hat serves millions of customers. So maybe that situation exists and I'm just not aware of it. Well, it's at least a good challenge, I guess. So that was my my kind of impression, too, is I ended up going into for training after I'd had several servers in production because then it became worth my company's time and money to send me. And I, I started with like, you know, I started with the uh, Linux Plus stuff and the Linux Basics and then went and got uh, some more specific training on uh, virtualization and things like that. It, very, you know, so funny now because it's I find now the Linux Plus and Linux Basic stuff that I learned in some sense to be more valuable than the more specific training I got because it's all different now. It's all changed. And uh, but what I did find is when I did the Linux Basics, even though I've been running Linux for several years at that point, they filled in a few gaps for me. And it really worked. And I, I also got a bit of a confidence boost. And more than that, I just learned a few more tricks, you know, because I hadn't really conceptualized some of the stuff. I knew it, but I hadn't totally conceptualized it. So, yeah, it's interesting, Noah, that uh, both of us kind of almost missed it. And uh, you, yeah. uh, you are lucky in the sense that you gave another shot. I think some people don't ever go back. Let me tell you, it was uh, it was pretty begrudgingly. I, <clears throat> it was because I, I, you know, really, you know, I'm condensing it down for the purpose of the story, but. The the reality was like from the time that he gave me those desks the second set, set, uh, the second time around till the time I actually installed them was probably six seven months that they sat on my desk and it wasn't until he called me and he's like yeah can I get those back from you at some point that I was like well it's now or never but it was not it, it was a very resistant second chance that I gave Linux and if I had gotten burned a second time I can say with almost without a shadow of a doubt I wouldn't be using Linux today the uh, Red Hat install that I did after I tried my first Debian install those discs were given to me by a family member, an uncle, who works or used to work at Microsoft. And this was a really, it was a big secret. In fact, I think one of the reasons he was giving me the disc is he didn't want, he didn't want to be caught with him. And I'm not joking. Uh, mm-hmm. So he was part of a smaller group in Microsoft. This is, you know, 90, 98, 99 maybe when he gave me uh-huh. these discs. And it, I remember it was a very nice trifold Red Hat cardboard like Something that something very nice that he'd probably gotten from somebody from Red Hat. It was it was like a presentation piece. And so and it had all of the installation discs and all the documentation and then it had all of the source code CDs as well. So it was a big three trifold pamphlet of Red Hat discs. Same thing. Same story. Sat on my table for three, four, five months. And then after I had that good Debian experience, I went and installed Red Hat because it wasn't from floppies. <laughs> you know, and one thing, too, I, th- I think of, you know, now that you got me thinking about it, too, is. I think one of the reasons that I am so passionate about trying to get people onto Linux and why I'm more than happy to go spend my own personal money on a solid state drive for somebody or a printer that works with Linux or, or whatever. I think part of that is that I would have I I would have traded my left leg to have somebody sit down and say, listen, none of your stuff is working, but that's OK. We're going to fix it. And here's what you have to do to get it to work. And then if your hard if my hardware didn't work, have them give me, you know, a network card that worked or something like that. I would have switched to Linux much, much earlier mm-hmm. because you, you think about the time from Windows 98 until the time of uh, of Windows XP. There's there's a good couple of years that I could have uh, I could have been using Linux in there. And I didn't simply because I had a bad experience and I didn't know what to do about it. I'm also I think it's interesting how quickly I became a distro hopper. Um, I, I tried Debian first and then my next install was Red Hat. And then almost immediately, I don't remember how closely it might have been when Red Hat dropped Red Hat and went Fedora Core. I don't somewhere in there I switched over to Mandrake. Even on the server, I did Mandrake server and I used the Drac config and the Drac server and I used all these Mandrake utilities. I even became a Mandrake club member so that way I could get access to the URPMI repos that were exclusive to club members and get club member updates. 
And uh, I was all in on Mandrake for years after that. Then I hopped over to SUSE, including SUSE Enterprise Linux, and deployed lots of SLES servers in production, um, but then ran into several issues. There was bugs in their uh, LibResolver, and there was bugs with their SCSI driver on Dell's perk controllers. Not really SUSE's fault, but it is what it was. And I went to FreeBSD for about six, seven months, deployed one server in production with that, and then found Gentoo. And because we needed very, very custom-built versions of uh, CUPS and the uh, PostScript drivers that Gentoo had available made it very easy to set and deploy CUPS servers. CUPS was brand new at the time. Um, my next task, my next big servers task, became replacing 20, I think it was 20 or 24 individual Windows 2000 print servers. Because if we loaded up more than this, because all the branches had lots of printers, all the, all the bank branches had lots of printers, receipt printers, laser printers, dot matrix printers, and so you can only put 20, 30, 40 printers on a Windows 2000 server, and you'd still have to restart the print spooler service a couple times a day. And it was just awful, yeah. awful, awful. Yeah. And so I moved all 20, 24 servers to one cup server running Gen 2. And it rocked. And we saved so much money that they bought me a second server to set up as a backup for failover. And then I pretty quickly started deploying a lot of Gen 2 because then, because we were doing Active Directory, and, and during this time, the Samba project lagged for a long time on their full Active Directory support. And there was different security modes for Active Directory. And if you left it in the NT4 mode that you needed for Samba compatibility, then we would be failing the FDIC audit. And then the, then the bank loses its FDIC insurance, which basically means it's no longer a bank. And so literally, if I deployed older versions of Samba, I was jeopardizing their FDIC insured status. Now, I wouldn't have completely invalidated, but they would have gotten marks on their audit and you get too many marks and then you have a problem. And so it... Gentoo literally allowed me to deploy versions in a simple managed way that made us compliant with the FDIC of Samba. So that way we could bring up our Active Directory security level. And so for a very long time, I deployed Gentoo servers. But it became such a nightmare to manage all of these Gentoo servers in production. There was nothing like Arch Linux back then. And I just had all of these things. I came up with some really great ways to standardize the update process. And back then you could also do distributed building. There was like a, a, a remote building service where... All of and you probably can still do this distributed GCC. And so when it, when it was time to build packages, I had staggered build schedules, and then all of the servers in the cluster would would help compile the packages. So the build times were actually fantastically fast because it was distributed building, and then it would install the packages, and it, it worked well. But back then, uh, these updates brought in a lot of changes. Like today, people talk about rolling releases being scary. You got no idea. You should have tried Gentoo in the early two thousands or whatever it was. It was. I mean, that's rolling, and that was really fresh stuff, and it was still manageable back then. You just had to—you really had to be careful how you did it. And so then from Gentoo, I, I, I moved back into the Debians and then the Ubuntus, and Ubuntu really—that Ubuntu sweet spot was when the LTSs started coming out, and they had modern packages with the, with the apt-get that I knew and loved from years ago. It really became—Ubuntu became the sweet spot for me for a very long time. And then you guys know the rest of that story. Later, became an Arch user, and now I'm where I'm at now. You know, it's it's funny because you can actually look in that story and start to pick out where your roots of really wanting uh, bleeding edge rolling software come from. And then you can look back at mine and find out where my roots of wanting that that really stable, solid, not changing software. And it, it's funny how your experience has led you to the point where you have a better experience on rolling and I have a better experience <laughs> on, on true, static. Huh? Well, it, it's crazy <laughs> because you would think you would think that. Uh, you would think that you, that that one of us would 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 suffer more than the other one, but the honest to gosh truth is like you were talking at the beginning of the show how you're having trouble with with your with your capture device on on uh, on on Ubuntu Mate, and 
I have no problems at all with my capture device on Ubuntu, would say, but I have tons of problems every time I try to do something with my Archbox. Uh, so it, it is yeah. it's just it's really interesting yeah. to see how I, you know, and you can see like listening to your story. I can see how if I had had that same experience, I think I would have wound up on the rolling uh, release track as well. Yeah, because I got to a point where I totally believed in Linux and how and how and, you know, it was solving all these connection problems we had with the limits of the uh, Windows server. But at the same time, it meant risking FDIC insurance if I didn't deploy Windows. So I had to come up with a solution and it worked for a long time. But uh, yeah, that was uh, and now and now I look at like uh, now I think where where we're at now, it's so much easier. Like uh, this is not a paid plug, but like spinning up droplets and things like that just blow my mind. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or like the Proxmox server I have running here. Uh, is is really kind of uh, just mind-blowing to me compared to where we've come from. So we'd love to hear your story. Uh, we'll see if we can fit some in the post-show here, but also head over to linuxactionshow.reddit.com, find episode 381, and give us a nice, concise version of your Linux introduction story. And also try to put some dates in there. I, w- I, I tried a little bit. I think I think my early experimentation was 98, 99. Uh, but I, you know, the dates are, it's past, it's been so long now that my dates are fuzzy. But if you know your dates, we'd love to hear them. Just go over to linuxactionshow.reddit.com. But there you go. That's how we got our start in Linux. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. We do have some emails to get to, Noah, and our first one comes in from Darren D. He says, hey, guys, have you heard or put any thought into this new Next Generation Alliance for the Open Media format? And he links us to it over here at Alliance for Open Media. Uh, And it is a new open standard for ultra-high-definition video. And it has uh, some big players involved with it. The founding members are Amazon, Cisco, Google, Intel, Microsoft, Mozilla, and Netflix pretty outstanding cast of characters the initial focus is an interoperable and open optimized for the web scalable for any modern device at any bandwidth designed for low computational footprint optimized for hardware and capable of consistent high quality real-time video delivery and flexible for both commercial and non-commercial content including user-generated content um yeah so basically another another open source codec but backed by a whole bunch of industry players Right. And the thing that that stood out to me is uh, the things that they are hitting as bullet points seem like the kind of things that I would be looking for if if, if you were if you had tasked me and said, no, go out and find uh, some some possible codecs some possible solutions for us to do remote video conferencing. Um, those are the kind of bullet points I would be looking for because they're not so focused on freedom that they totally leave out functionality and usability. Right. And so uh, yeah, that kind of stood out to me as kind of interesting. It's definitely something to keep our eye on, if nothing else. So York, York, Yorkshire writes in and he says, whilst listening to last 380 podcast, you mentioned Screen Connect as a solution for remote access to a computer. Mm. Since this is a paid service at a minimum of $19 per month, it's not a solution I would use when helping family, family members troubleshoot computer problems. Your show notes didn't mention this or provide a link, but I guess adding a lot of the stuff to the show notes is time consuming. Personally, I use TeamView for my remote desktop assistance, but prefer to find some other alternatives. I quite liking the audio shows. However, I don't find the IRC chat particularly useful, but appreciate other visual stuff that you include. Normally, I would watch live, but the new showtime prevents that for now. Still, I hope you get to enjoy your weekends now. Lastly, a big thanks for all you do. Uh, so a couple things. First of all, if you want more information about Screen Connect, we actually covered it more in depth on, on an earlier version of Last that was a remote desktop. And we talked a little bit more about yeah. it. Screen Connect, the reason I use it is because you say that it they have it, it's a paid service at a minimum of $19 a month, but actually you can just buy it outright for like two or $300. And while that might seem like a high cost, 
actually to buy a commercial team viewer license is astronomically expensive, like thousands of dollars. Um, I think they start at like 15 or 1600 bucks and mm-hmm. that's for a single version. Mm-hmm. Whereas with screen connect, it cost me, I think two or 300 bucks. And then I can upgrade that for, I think two years yeah. uh, before my quote unquote service contract runs out. And then I can either just, I can either just stop paying them and I stick with the latest version I have, or I can pay again and then get, get another two years. But uh, they don't, there's no activation or anything like that. So even if, if tomorrow screen connect went out of business, I would still be able to use the version that I paid for. And that's really my, my bottom line of, uh, of what I'm willing to tolerate in the proprietary software world. And Chris, you had just mentioned, you know, earlier this episode about how you couldn't install windows cause you didn't have a CD key. And it, it's stuff like that. I've been burned by stuff like that enough times that I, I draw a hard line in the sand and I just, I will not rely on something that requires some other company to exist for me to use it. Um, and this doesn't violate that that uh, that rule of thumb. I think that's a pretty sensible rule of thumb. I like that as sort of like a cutoff for when, how far you're willing to go with proprietary software in your in your work or in your day to day life. It's right. can I use it if that company goes away? And uh, that's a good threshold to go by. I think if if you if you need to ask, um, I wanted to give a just a quick plug again to our friends at Mycroft, just because they're super close. This is the open source artificial intelligence for everyone. It's, it's like one part Amazon Echo, but another part, if they reach their stretch goal, is also an AI, voice-controlled AI for the Linux desktop. Uh, the Mycroft AI is really neat. The thing is, they have five days left to go. They need $99,000 just to get their you know, base funding, and they're at 91000 right now. Uh, it'd be really cool if we got them pushed over, and uh, maybe you guys could help spread the word. 775 backers, five days to go. I would just love to see open source not be the playing the catch-up role that we always play in these kinds of new markets, in voice and speech recognition, in AI-controlled UI and virtual reality. So often, open source gets left out, has to play catch-up. Look what's happening with the Oculus and VR. It drives me crazy. And now Cortana is available for Windows, series on, uh, on, on iOS, and I'm sure it'll be on the Mac soon. It's one of these things where we don't want to be, once again, playing catch-up. This is something that this, this, the code for this is going to be contributed to the open source community. I think that's pretty neat. For me, it's a big deal. You can check it out. Uh, go to Kickstarter and look for Mycroft. I think it's mycroft.ai slash Kickstarter if you want to go directly. Five days left. 99 is the goal, and they're at 91,000 right now. Woo, it's going to be a tight one, Noah. Maybe we'll follow up next week and uh, see if they made it. Yes, sir. Okay, if you want to get a hold of the Linux Action Show, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click that contact link, and choose Linux Action Show from the drop-down. Or linuxactionshow.reddit.com. That's a great, play, a great place, too. If you've got, like, specific episode feedback for 381, um, go there. You'll find a feedback thread. If you want to submit a story or an open-source project we should talk about or anything like that, also that subreddit's a great place to do it. And don't forget the calendar. We are doing these shows on Friday right now. Don't know exactly if we'll stay there, but you can find out at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And then last but not least, uh, don't forget, I got those road trip updates. There's a playlist linked in the show notes, and I'm pretty happy with the way the first two videos came out. And so they're only a few minutes long. You can go check them out and get an update on what's going on with the uh, JB Road Show. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Linux Action Show, and we'll see you right back here next week. as a sort of a special post-show thing, we kind of chat with the mumble room a bit and see how they got started with Linux, and so we queued up a couple of people. William, you're up first now. It's okay. William warned me. He doesn't have, like, all the timeline, all that solid. That's okay. Just kind of was curious how you got started with Linux, William. Yeah, so it was one of those things where I was at my grandparents' house. It was Thanksgiving or something. They uh, they had just got a new Dell Dimension with XP, so this is, like, 2003. 
This is like right when XP came out. Mm-hmm. They got this new computer to replace their old Windows 98 SE box, which is like a Packard Bell or Compaq. One of those old things, you know, those big old beige boxes with all the drives and buttons, mm-hmm. 5.2 inch, all the crazy stuff. Nice. Um, and so as my uncle was a big computer science guy, he, you know, worked at the tech company at the time. He, you know, wanted to introduce me to Linux. He knew I was big into computers. And so he figured, why not, you know, what is a better way to do this other than taking an old machine and having, you know, you sit down with him over the weekend and try and get Linux up and running. And so uh, we started off, he had picked DSL, Damn Small Linux. I have no idea why at the time. I guess it looked good. It was small. The machine was old. We needed something to install. Seemed like a good fit. So we tried to do that. Seemed like a good fit. Um, I guess we, I think we tried Mandrake. I forget what was out at the time with all the other distros it's kind of a distant memory and i wasn't that familiar with it (laughs) yeah um but i think we tried to do mandrake and like the graphics were all messed up or something and like we had a lot of driver issues and dsl was one of the few things we could get a live cd up and running and booted on this machine that only had you know like 100 200 megs of ram it was really ancient even by those standards of that day so yeah that yeah that boy it's funny when you start talking about the ram too that like the ram was so pathetic back then it was like a nice experiment, and we tried to get, you know, like PHP and Apache set up and all those things, and, you know, get some sort of, like, simple dynamic web server going um, with some very simple scripting. Uh, and that kind of leapfrogged me. That got me started thinking about Linux. I didn't really use it that much after that point. That was kind of just a fun little, you know, Thanksgiving experiment. Um, it wasn't until, like, 2006, I think, that I started playing with Debian at my house. Um, when my mom actually got rid of her desktop and had upgraded to a new laptop, um, it meant that the desktop was freed up and I could use it for whatever I wanted. So I experimented with Debian on that, got like a little server going, uh, used that out of my home, hosted the website, all that stuff, you know, back in the day, all the common fun things. Um, at the same time, I was also replacing a old ThinkPad T22 with a new Dell Inspiron that I had got. And so again, another, you know, fun thing to experiment with Linux on. But at the time, you know, none of this stuff was, you know, my day-to-day driver, right? It was all just a fun experiment. It wasn't until like 2008 when Ubuntu 8.04 came out that I could really use something as a daily driver. And so I put that on my Dell Inspiron and it worked fine. It was the first thing that actually had a working Wi-Fi driver for that machine. <laughs> and so, you know, well, up until the then, there was win, no way right? I could possibly use Linux, right? I had to have the working Wi-Fi driver. Right. And there were all sorts of other things like video drivers not working correctly. But 804 was like that first like milestone where I could actually use all of my hardware out of the box with something really trivially. And that was really important. And that's sort of where I got started. And then in 2010, I found Arch and FreeBSD, and I ran Arch until 2013, you know, FreeBSD for one or two years on some servers. And then at the end of 2013, migrated completely to NixOS, became a developer, and I've been using it ever since. I've never looked back. Love it, William. That's awesome. Thank you. WW, do you want to share how you got started over with the Linux? So I got started, well, I got my actual own personal computer back in 1995. Um, It was on Windows for Workgroups, and then... Uh, with my own personal group of friends, I started using just, you know, Windows. And then uh, we eventually, like, got into uh, BEOS, and then I just went to Linux. Linux and uh, I started out with Red Hat 5.60 and then went to 5.8 later on. But I, I had so many problems back then because, like, I wanted to do all these different things and, and play around. It just wasn't possible for me to do what I wanted to back then. You know, it was hard running just your games on Wine back then. And so for a while, I quit. And now 2012 comes around and, you know, we got modern systems and everything. And Gabe was all, you know what? Windows is bad. We're going to make Steam OS. And that got me thinking again about Linux. Really? And so, yeah. So I'm like, well, I, I like I found Brian London's talk on 
Windows sucks yeah. and Linux sucks. Yeah. And you're like, well, this is I, something I should watch. And then, like, and then, like, I watched both of those. And then, like, I found that's how I found Truth for Broadcasting. And then, like, I, I just, you know, I was able to install Ubuntu. And since I had that previous experience and I'm fairly knowledgeable with setting up OSs, having to do that so many times with Windows operating systems, you know, it wasn't that hard for me to install Ubuntu and just get started. It was just a lot better than how I remembered Linux was back in the 90s. So mm-hmm. that's pretty much how I got started with it. I'm just still continuing with it today. That's awesome. Now, uh, uh, Noah, you've been drafted to share Gamma's story. You have a, a quick version of that. Yeah, so anyone that's ever in the mumble room uh, knows that Gamma and I like to argue. And it doesn't matter what we argue about, we just like to argue, like lane splitting in California. And so uh, we started talking about uh, operating systems one day, and Gamma was a devout Windows user, and I was a devout Linux user. And after driving everyone else in the mumble room nuts to the point that they all left, we actually uh, we, we actually got like four or five hours into it, and finally... The solution was Gamma said he would use Linux if I would send him a laptop installed with Linux. So a couple days later, a laptop arrived in the mail with Linux installed and he took it and reinstalled Linux and tried a a bunch of different distros until he found exactly what he liked and then eventually ended up installing it on his desktop. And he would telegram me throughout all of the little problems that he would run into and he'd have a problem with his graphics card and he would have a problem with with the with the specific distro that he was using, and he'd have a problem with the configuration of this, that, or the other, and then uh, then eventually, uh, I think, uh, uh, what was it, Gamma? At that point, you said you wanted to use a server, so um, went out and got him a, a super micro server and set that up, and 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 gave it an IP address and installed a, a, a very basic uh, install of of, of uh, Ubuntu, and then he started setting up a, a, a web server, and then he set up to to start developing PHP applications, and uh, and now. Now, uh, if, if I log into the Mumble Room, Gamma's usually the one convincing everyone else to use Linux. Love it. That's awesome. That's a great story. So there you go. We'd love to hear your stories, too. Go over to linuxactionshow.reddit.com and share them with us or send them in linuxactionshow at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Maybe we'll feature them. Or maybe we could do a couple in next week's Linux Unplugged. We always have our open virtual lug in Linux Unplugged Live, and you can join us and share your story there. We'll maybe do a little segment there. Yeah. 